Would you all open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, uh, sorry, chapter 22. It's the last chapter in your Bible, so it's easy to find. And uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 5 as we finish this series on the church. Uh, as Pastor Tim told you, he'll begin that Romans series next week, and you still can still pick up those scripture journals, which are really cool if you want uh, for that. But this morning we're finishing our series on the church by reading Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5, which says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. <clears throat> On our morning walks, uh, Audrey, my wife, and I, we walk past this home with a yard that's been made into a garden. And because we walk by it so regularly, we have noticed and discovered that it has been meticulously planned and planted, curated and cultivated, because at almost every point in the year, there is something in bloom in that garden. I'm always in awe at how just as one a variety of, of plants and flowers starts to wilt and fade, another group of flowers is just waking up and flowering all around it. It isn't stagnant like a normal lawn. It's ever-changing, and it's beautiful. And it's on a corner where we have to wait for the, the crossing signal, so I often get to stop and stare more than if we were just walking past, and I annoy Audrey because the signal tells us to go, and I'll be like staring at some new plant that I hadn't seen before, and it's, it's beautiful. And the, the gardener of that garden has obviously put thought and care and intentionality and maintenance into that garden. Even though I had never seen her for a while, and I have still only seen her once or twice, I could see evidence of her work. In one of my first college classes, I had a secular professor who didn't much like the idea of God, and he, he once uh, referred to this quote uh, from another person who didn't, uh, that said, isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it too? And as I thought about that, I thought, well, a garden has never made me believe in fairies, but it has made me believe in something, a gardener, right? And I hope I wasn't the only one in that class who could see that he undermined his own point in trying to remove our delusions of a person you can't see who has thoughtfully and powerfully created and cares for his creation. He pointed us to something that's clear evidence of a person who's thoughtful and powerful and caring and wise and who is clearly pointed to by the evidence, even though you don't see them. A gardener. Before I ever saw the lady who tends that garden that Audrey and I walk by, 
before I ever saw her, I didn't think anything about fairies. I didn't, but I did believe, I wouldn't even say believe. I knew with absolute certainty there was a person behind that garden. And that planning and that cultivation. Even though I had never seen her. It's exactly the same with this carefully created world that we live in. God is a gardener. We see that in creation. Romans 1, which, God, uh, which Pastor Tim is going to get to, says that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. But we also see it in our history and in our hope recorded in Scripture. The Bible begins and ends with gardens. God started us out in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And it was an incredible place, a place full of life and full of God himself, his personal presence walking with his people. But a choice was made there to forsake contentment and to take control. A choice has said, not your will, but mine be done. To look beyond all of the beauty and the bounty and the blessings and to want something more or what they thought was something more but was actually infinitely less. Forsaking the role of beneficiary in a vain attempt to become equal with the benefactor. But God would only walk with his beloved friends in Eden. He would not walk with rebels. And from then on, we lost our access to God, cut off from his presence. And ever since then, we have ached for it. Our emptiness and our unfulfilled longings are a deep homesickness for Eden, for the garden. But Christ has offered us hope, the hope of homecoming. And because he is a gardener himself, he's done it through two pivotal gardens. Jesus loved gardens. Do you know that about him? He was particularly fond of one called the Garden of Gethsemane, where he he retreated to the night of his arrest to seek God in prayer and preparation for what was to come. And where the first Adam in his garden, Eden, essentially said, my will be done even against yours. In Gethsemane, Christ would pray, thy will be done even over mine. But the second garden is even greater. The garden of Joseph's tomb where Jesus was laid after his death. We know it's a garden because when Mary meets an unknown person there, she assumes it's the gardener of that place. And in that garden, Jesus stepped out in victory where Adam had hidden in shame. His shameful sin bringing death to humanity, Christ's victorious resurrection brings life and restoration. And Scripture calls this resurrection, this resurrection life of Jesus, it calls it the first fruits of something that is to come. When Christ will resurrect not only his dead body, but his dead and broken world, the new heavens and the new earth fully united and restored. The new garden that we read about just moments ago in Revelation 22. Christ will bring us home. Eden 2.0 with its life-giving river and its tree of healing where God is perfectly present and therefore all darkness and all deception, all crookedness and cursedness are gone. 
The head of the ancient serpent has been crushed and the son of man is seated on the throne. God is with his people in the place that he's prepared for them. Through Christ, we'll be, we will be welcomed into this garden of generous grace and abundant life. But it's not just a garden. It's a garden city. John calls it the holy city in the previous chapter. City, and it's a city like, like all cities uh, where people are brought together from all over to be together. A kingdom, as it's talked about and elsewhere in Scripture, with authority and art and culture and work and sitting on porches and playing in streets and bustle and purpose and laughter and food. And like all cities, it has a center, a hub, an identity. Ancient cities used to be centered on temples or markets. And modern cities, too, have cultures and centers and identities like that. I used to live in, in uh, Nashville called Music City, right? Maybe now called uh, Bachelorette Party City. Audrey and I live, uh, visited... Uh, Los Angeles and everyone behind a cash register that I talked to was trying to make it big in Hollywood in the entertainment industry. I married a young couple a while back and the, and the man was involved in politics, so where did they move? D.C. Cities have centers, and, but of course they're complex and divided and there's no completely unified city. And there's no cities where the undeniable center is God himself, the one true God. But Hebrews 10 tells us that here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And then the next chapter, Hebrews 11, tells us that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. And John shows us that city here in Revelation, a remarkable garden city. And what's happening in that city? Last part of verse 3 says, His servants will worship Him. The people of that city are united in worship. But here, the important, the important thing to note about that is that in the previous chapter, John is very intentional to say that there is no temple. In verse 22 of chapter 21, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. See, so there's no need for a temple because of Christ's full and perfect presence among us. So that means that all of life in the city to come is worship. Or a better way to say it is that worship fills every part of life in the city to come which is a fulfillment of Jesus' teaching about worship, isn't it? Because remember in John 4, when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she asks him where people ought to worship, and at this mountain where my people worship, or at Jerusalem where your people worship, what location? And he says it's no longer about location, but about spirit and truth. He says the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then he says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It's not about where you are. It's about your heart. Wherever you are, be worshiping. The Greek word for worship is proskuneo. It literally means falling down. 
We're to be falling down before God, not in a place, but in our hearts, humbling ourselves in reverence and rejoicing in his holiness. As we close this series on the church, I wanted to talk about worship, but it's important to note that in the New Testament, worship is radically untethered from outward rituals and radically refocused on the heart. It was always about the heart, like when King David in the Old Testament says to God, you don't delight in sacrifice or burn offerings, but in a contrite heart. Even then, when worship was connected to heavily prescribed external rituals, God still wanted our hearts. But even to a greater degree, and the New Testament says it's about your heart. Jesus made that clear. The apostles further emphasized the point. The fact that, like, in fact, to the point that like, in the early days of the church, in the Roman Empire, there, you can find documents where they criticized Christians as being atheists. And they called us that because we didn't have any temples or any places of pilgrimage or any images or priests or sacrifices. And what we do have, though, we do have some of those things, but they're so different than in any other religion that it looks like we don't. Because we are the temples and the images, and Christ is the priest and the sacrifice. And in a practical sense, this is because the gospel is to spread throughout the whole earth, the whole world. This is why Christianity is the most diverse and multicultural movement in history. Uncentered by geography like other religions and philosophies, Christianity's center has constantly shifted throughout the ages. And, and the gospel has spread throughout the world, uniting us here right now in America and in Troy with brothers and sisters in places like the slums of Kenya and the skyscrapers of Hong Kong. And Sunday morning, on Sunday morning, in places more different than you can imagine, our eternal siblings celebrate the risen Christ in beautifully different ways around the world. Right now. Christianity is the most ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically, racially diverse belief system in history precisely because Jesus really is the one true Lord of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. And he is not content to be in one place to which people come at certain times. No, he goes out and he seeks worshipers, filling them with his spirit so that their entire life can be worshipped for his glory and their joy. Worship is not about a building or certain times. It's about truly and deeply valuing the most valuable God. About aiming our whole life at God. Giving him your greatest love and devotion in all that you are and do. I believe this with all my heart. But I also believe with equal conviction that what we are doing here this morning is of the utmost importance. But one could easily wonder if all of life is worship, what are we doing here? We call this worship. And I believe rightly so. But if worship is a condition of the heart, and it's to be done in all of life, then what is happening here? What is unique or significant about our gathered worship? And I think one great answer is that what we are doing here is enacting and anticipating our hope. Our incredible hope that has been pictured for us in Revelation 21 and 22. Theologians talk about the theme of already, not yet. Scripture is full of what many call the already not yet. 
which is the idea that promises are already set in motion, but have not yet come to full fruition. That they're already commenced, but not yet completed. And such is and one great example of this is the presence of Christ, where we gather because in a real and powerful sense, he is with us and he meets us here. As we listen to his word together and we pray and sing to him together, but he's here, but we also do this in the hope of the promise of revelation that in a way not yet known, God will be with us and among us when our faith is turned to sight in ways that are beyond our imagination. C.S. Lewis, this, this idea of living into our hope, like C.S. Lewis talked about this, he, he said this is why children's games are so important. They're always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop, but all the time they are hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretense of being grown-up helps them to grow up in earnest. He's saying hope is seeing what we will be and living into that future reality. That is our part. But Lewis goes on to describe God's part in similar terms. He says, a mother teaches her baby to talk by talking to it as if it understood far before it actually does. God sees us now as we will be. And he acts accordingly, lifting us up and communing with us. And what I love about those illustrations that Lewis brought up is how true they are despite their silliness. Because, like, imagine with me uh, for a moment, like, some alien from outer space that doesn't know anything about humanity is looking in, and, and he, he might think that a little girl caring for a doll seems ridiculous. And a mother speaking to a blabbering baby that can't understand her is a fool. And the gathered worship of the church might seem like a feeble act in light of the glorious things we proclaim. But when the little girl becomes a mother and the baby begins to talk and the church is revealed in glory, it's that skeptical spectator that will be put to shame and we are vindicated. The glorious thing, though, about gospel hope is that it really is already true though not yet consummated, that doesn't negate the already. You really are a new creation in Christ. We really are gathered in the presence of God. We really are met by him and marked by him. We're really sustained by his life and centered on his glory. And as we live in the glorious already, we live out the glorious not yet, our incredible hope. So I want to look at our hope in this passage and see how we are marked and met, how we're centered and sustained. When Drew started this series on the church, he talked about the Great Commission. He talked about how we are marked by baptism into Christ's body. And this is the text that came to my mind when he said that. When the image John gives us of the new Jerusalem, which we are all marked by the name of Jesus in an unmistakable way. We are his we are united by being his. In the present, we live in, mixed in among the world. But in gathered worship, we are set apart, separate, distinct. We welcome lost souls to join us that they might taste and see that the Lord is good. But the point here is that we are God's people recognizing together that we are his. We are acknowledging his claim together on our lives. Together. 
And this side of heaven, we are meant to be in the world, to be salt and light, Jesus said. Or as Paul said, to shine as lights in the midst of the, a crooked and twisted generation. But we gather in the hope that it will not always be so. That one day we will shine as lights, not in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, but in the midst of an even greater light. When the whole new creation will shine in the light of his goodness and grace. The hope of verses 3 and 4, which says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. We gather to seek his face in the hope that one day we will see his face. A face that's glorious in whose presence the whole creation has been renewed and nothing is accursed. No crookedness, no twistedness. God's people united and whole under his perfect reign. But he not only marks us, he meets us personally. We are met by the Lord in worship. When his word is read, and preached, and sung, and prayed by his people to his people, he really speaks to us, and he listens to us. When we praise him and pray to him, he really changes us, slowly but surely, sometimes quickly. He really is here, his spirit indwelling, he is redeemed. We are told that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, so in a very real sense, we bring the presence of God to one another. We are met by God and marked by God here and in the garden. But I want to spend a little more time on my second two points, which are that we are centered and sustained because we are centered on him and illuminated by his glory. And we, we partake of his life and are healed through the tree of life. Our gathered worship is a recentering of our souls and our lives. The glory of God is the center of gravity for the church and its worship. In our text, in verse 5, it says, Night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp, uh, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. As strange as it sounds, the sun is a shadow of which Christ is the substance. He created the sun in part to point to the greater light that would one day light and illuminate his world. Think about the sun for a moment and it's clear. It's probably the greatest physical picture we have of transcendence. It is immense beyond what we can imagine. Its gravity holds together our whole solar system. It has seen all of human history. It governs the hours of our day and the days of our year, and it governs our seasons. It's too bright to behold, and its light and warmth both illuminate and enliven the world. And it's utterly constant and ever shining, even when we can't see it. Christ is the better sun, the sun of righteousness, as Malachi calls him who will rise with healing in his wings, in whose light, he says, we leap like calves from the stall. That's how Malachi talks about and prophesies the coming of the king as the dawning of a new day. 
The sunrise that wakes us up and gives us that particularly fresh and free feeling that dawn brings. And the same John who wrote Revelation wrote the Gospel of John, in which he tells us that when Christ came into the world, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. Can I tell you a thought that filled me with awe while I was thinking this week? I love this promise of Christ's glory lighting our world because what are God's first recorded words in Scripture? Let there be light. And there was an immediate result, but there would also be a more glorious and eternal result of those first words that he must have been thinking about, right? He's God. When he uttered those words, he knew what he was saying. He knew what would come. That one day his good creation would be lit by the glory of his one and only Son. He is the true light of the world. It's no coincidence that when his life was extinguished by our darkness and sin on the cross, the sun went black. And darkness was overshadowing the light. But there was coming another dawn. And that Sunday morning that transformed every other Sunday morning since into a recentering on the light by the children of the light. The dawn of that day was the dawn of a new day in history and a foretaste of the dawn of the eternal sun that will never set. I love how it says we will see his face in verse 4. Because elsewhere we're told that God dwells in unapproachable light. And yet, not only will we approach the unapproachable, but we too will dwell in that light. Beholding the face of the Lord, our greater Son, our center of gravity, and illuminating warmth. He empowers and strengthens us to withstand his glory as he welcomes us into it. The Apostle Paul says, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is the hope that we enact here. And we are not only centered on his glory, but we are sustained by his life. A major focal point of this holy garden city is the tree of life. And if that sounds familiar to you, it should. There was one of those in the first garden. There were two notable trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But here's, there's only one tree. And it's a magnificent tree. I mean, listen to it. It's described like this. On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. The fact that this tree is there makes me very happy. I'm kind of obsessed with trees. I love them. They were, after all, God's first explicit gift to us. Did you know that? In Genesis 1.29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed and that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. I love his gift of trees to us. I'm grateful for them every day. But there's several unique things about this tree in particular. One is that, you know, it has more than one kind of fruit, uh, which we're not used to. But an even stranger thing is that this tree is on either side of the river. One tree on two sides of a river. 
And I know there's a lot of interesting imagery in this passage, and sometimes the strangeness is telling us something. Because this passage is heavily drawn from the vision of the prophet Ezekiel. But here, John makes what seems like a very intentional change to those details. Let me read you what Ezekiel says so you can see. Ezekiel 47 verse 12 says, On both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So we see the river flowing and the trees on, either, on the banks and leaves for healing. All things that John writes about in his vision. But where Ezekiel has many trees on either side of the river, John only sees one tree on either side of the river. And the author Andrew Wilson pointed out a really beautiful and compelling reason why. He said the strangeness of the image of a single tree on two sides of the river is compensated for by the power of the symbolism that in all the world there is one tree and one tree only whose fruit is bountiful enough to feed the world and whose leaves are sufficient to heal the nations. I think John has a tree in mind. It's one that he encountered himself staring at it for six terrible hours that must have seemed like months the tree of Calvary. That's a beautiful thought that I know might seem like a stretch because in our minds there's a sharp distinction between wood and trees. But in the biblical language, languages, they didn't really have that distinction. Uh, remember, we are of a different culture and of uh, a different language and have a different way of seeing things. But in both Hebrew and Greek, the languages the Bible was written in, the word for tree also meant things made from trees. Like in Esther, when the villain Haman wants to hang Mordecai, in the Hebrew it says he built a tree. But it's not translated that way because we, we know from the context he was building a large wooden structure. In, in the book of Acts, when the apostles talk about what happened to Jesus, they don't say cross, they say tree. Like in Acts 10.39, Peter says they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And in Galatians, the Apostle Paul connects some dots for us by quoting from Deuteronomy and says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ did not deserve that death or that curse. He bore it in our place and removed it from us. His curse, this cursedness is related to the nature of tree executions. They're humiliating public statements. One that's closer to our time and culture would be hangings, which are a public statement of justice in some instances. Or in the case of racial lynchings, it's a public statement of oppression and power. And the Roman cross was used in both of those exact same ways. A dehumanizing curse. And with that in mind, take another look at what John says right after he describes the tree of life. He describes the tree in verse 2, and in verse 3, he begins by saying, No longer will there be anything accursed. The tree of the curse has become the tree of the anti-curse. That is the power of our Jesus. The tree of death is now the tree of life, sustaining our life, healing our brokenness. When we eat the Lord's Supper, Christ is inviting us to come to the tree of life and to eat and drink of the fruit that hung from that tree, his body and his blood. 
And just as we were exiled from the garden by eating of the fruit that hung from a tree, we are welcomed back into the presence of God by eating from what hung from that tree. If that sounds weird or gross to you, it sounded weird and gross to the people Jesus first told it to. The day after he miraculously fed 5,000 people, he told them they would have to eat and drink his flesh and blood, and people freaked out and said, I don't care how much miraculous food you give me. I don't want to do that. And they left. And large crowds dispersed. But that didn't deter him from the image. He doubled down on that message the night before he died with his disciples. He told them the same thing. It may sound strange, but it's the image he gives us for breaking the curse of sin and death. Internalizing him. Receiving into us the sustenance of his sacrifice. Coming to his tree to receive his life. The life of him who bore our death. Receiving healing from him who has borne the curse for us. I want you to imagine this dead tree planted at Calvary, watered by the blood of our Savior, and all of a sudden it begins to sprout. <laughs> Little branches that grow larger and larger and then leaves budding and unfolding and gleaming with the hope of healing. And then fruit emerging and ripening. Not just one variety like a normal tree, but many different varieties, each more flavorful and satisfying than you ever thought possible. Satisfying your taste and, and your, your hunger and your very life. Take and eat, Jesus says. The cross is not just wood. Because of Jesus, it is a tree that is living and life-giving. And we have access to it because of Christ, what Christ has done with it. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And then he says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Which I think is really appropriate for our topic of worship. We're gathering as a flock, returning again and again to our shepherd as a flock. If you are straying like sheep, return to the shepherd of your soul. He bore your sins in his body on the tree. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we hope in your amazing promises. We are humbled and grateful for your presence with us, your calling and saving us, your sustaining us with your life, and we rejoice in your glory. I pray that you would fill us with hope, fill us with soul-stirring, heart-waking, mind-renewing, life-changing hope in what you have in store for us. And that we would live out the incredible already of that not yet. We pray in Jesus' kind and mighty name. 
Amen.